0: This month sees the publication of Phoebe, Dr. Paula Gooder's first foray into fiction. The story of the deacon and patron mentioned in Paul's letter to the Romans, it invites us into the world of first century Christianity, in some respects not so different to our own. In our interview we talked about the power of the imagination, women pursuing their calling then and today, and whether as a church we've got any better at arguing with each other. You can also read my write-up of the interview in this week's Church Times. And don't forget that you can get 10 issues of the newspaper for just £10. Go to www.churchtimes.co.uk slash subscribe. What I wanted to ask you first was, I guess, why did you decide to write it? Is it something that you've wanted to do for a long time? What made you want to write something that's um, more, I guess, in the kind of historical
1: imagination space? In the course of my life, I talked to a whole load of people, and yes. uh, there's a, a whole range of Christians who either just think Paul isn't for them because um, they've had a bad experience in some way or another, or just yes. never read a book on Pauline scholarship. It takes a certain type of person to be able to pick up a book on Pauline scholarship. So, what I was wanting to try and do was talk to those people and yes. say, No, it's a bit more interesting than you think. Let me tell you how it's more interesting than you think.
0: Okay. Brilliant. Because um, one one of the quotes actually that I I picked up on um, was that you said that Paul provokes the best conversations, and and it felt a bit like sometimes that you were maybe trying to sort of rehabilitate his reputation a bit. Yeah. And that yeah. The other passage where you say um, the problem was that Paul loved to argue so much that he couldn't understand those who did and or who were in some way undermined or damaged in the process. Was that sort of something that you were trying to do to try and almost sort of explain
1: Paul to readers through through his character? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think you've got kind of various different elements going on. Is it Mm. clearly Paul, writing from his background, both as a Jew and as someone who's trained in um, Greek Greek and Roman philosophy, um, loves a real argument. Mm. Um, I think sometimes, you know, particularly when Paul gets really carried away in letters like Galatians, to us, he kind of feels like he's going over the top. And what mm. I, was, I was just trying to do was just to say, well, A, that's who he was, and B, that's how he was trained. And, and actually, he might have been received differently at the time as well. You know, I think you know, what I was trying to do with characters like Priska Priscilla, get um, mm. yeah, Prisca to be just a little bit grumpy about Paul and the way in which he wasn't perhaps good about human relations. And just to reveal that, you know, Paul is a really interesting character, but sometimes he, he rubs he even us up in the 21st century the wrong way.
0: Yeah. Um, you say in the notes that um, you've been told many times that Paul is bad for women and that you don't agree. Was that a sort of journey that you went on? Did did you ever have that opinion
1: of him and change it? Yeah, no, I think I, I have definitely changed my view on it because it is it's just accepted, isn't it? That if you' if you are a woman um, you're not really going to get on very well with Paul um, mm-hmm. and um, and I, I kind of came through it through my graduate work where I was taught by Tom Wright and um, got, so I began to see Paul through Tom's eyes which um, brought it all to life for me um, mm-hmm. and then I had a slow journey through um, the more difficult passages on women and realized that mm-hmm. actually I just don't hold the same view on what Paul's trying to do than other people do. Something that you wrote is that it's not a novel, it's an act of
0: historical imagination. And I wondered if you could say a bit more about that. Um, and also important for us to use our imagination as theologians. And is that something that the church has always allowed or has that sometimes been sort of almost regarded as
1: controversial? Yeah, well, shall I start with a novel bit? Yes. Um What I'm, what I was desperately trying to do is to say, look, I know I'm not a novelist. Um, I think novelists are, I, I, I I read novels like there's no, you know no end to them I love novels I think novelists are utterly brilliant and I think um it is really easy just to assume that um, you know anyone just can pick it up and write a novel and I know from my novelist friends it's a skill it's the real it's really crafted and I wanted to give respect to novelists and say look I'm not just the newbie who's having a go at doing what you've been doing for years mm-hmm. um so so that's what I'm trying to say about kind of I'm not a novelist and, and in any case, um, the, the other thing I, know, I do know about novels is if, if it's a real novel, um, the story drives everything. So it's yeah. the, the inner story is what drives it. Whereas I have constraining factors, which is that um, I am trying to keep it um, pegged to history as far as I can. Yeah. That's what scholarship has said about history. So it can't quite be a novel because it can't go in any direction. But therefore, it is a piece of historical imagination, and for me the, it's really striking that we do a lot of imagination when we do when we think about the gospels. the techniques of meditation um, that you do around gospel stories um often will encourage you to imagine yourself into at the mm. time Jesus was, but you never, never do that around paul's letters, and mm. um, I think that task of just imagining yourself into what it was like, what it might have been heard like. Did you agree? Did you not agree? Kind of just lift it off the page in a way that um, otherwise it doesn't. And I think your question about has it been disapproved of in Christian history? Yeah, I think it has. And I think mm. it has because for a good reason, really, that we can we want to deal in truth. We want to say, you know, this is so important and we need to understand what truth is. That therefore what I'm doing is is actually not entirely dealing with truth, because actually what I'm doing is, is kind of engaging with imagination. But I think if you don't engage with imagination and you lose something really important, what I'm trying to illustrate is that if you use careful imagination and you use the history that you know, you can get access to a different form of truth, which is that kind of emotional, spiritual truth, which I think is sometimes lacking when you're reading Portland Scholarship.
0: What was it about Phoebe in particular that, that drew you in? And is she somebody that's been important to
1: your own faith? She's tantalising and scholars um, are tantalising about her and I have for many years just been tantalising and in the end I kind of broke down and said I've got to do something about this because um, what you've got in scholarship is various bits of agreement. So Bibi was a deacon of the church in Corinth. Mm-hmm. Bibi was a patron who would have had clients and was wealthy. Phoebe the name um, was normally given to slaves so therefore mm-hmm. Um, would have been um, a freed slave. Fourth piece of information: Phoebe, scholars agree, took the letter of Romans from Corinth to Rome, and therefore was probably the very first person who ever explained it to anyone who wasn't Paul. So, you've got those four pieces of information together—that is just gold. Um, yeah. and that's what I, I, in the end, I went, oh, I've got to do something with this because you've got a former slave who's now very wealthy, important in the church, the first exegete of Romans. You can't not do something with that. That is too good. And in the end, that, that's why I, um, I was waiting for the right way to do it. And this seemed to be the right way to do it.
0: I think sort of what, what came across was that you um, have a real affection for that period of the church's history. And I wondered, what is it about that time that um, kind of excites and, and interests
1: you? I'm going to say what I say, but then I might disagree with myself. But it's it, kind of working it out on the hoof. You know, it's it's new, it's fresh, it's vibrant. These people have just encountered Jesus, and he's made an enormous difference in their, li- difference in their lives, who he was, right, risen from the dead, the sending of the Spirit. And then they've got to work out, actually, what does this really mean? And there is something about that working it out. What does it mean? What difference does it make to the world? What difference does it make to me? That I think is absolutely captivating. And because often these days we're not working it out quite in the same kind of way, you haven't quite got that vibrancy, and it's the vibrancy that I think is just, like I say, captivating.
0: I noticed that you say at one point that some one of your characters says um, of the letter, I wouldn't be surprised if people are still trying to work out what it means in a few yeah. months' time, uh-huh. uh, which I felt was a sort of a hint of, you know, with hindsight, it would act- actually be centuries of people trying to work out um, yeah. what it exactly. meant.
1: What I was trying to say is I don't think they would have known then um, oh. that thousand years later we would still be reading it. I think they'd be going, oh, this is really interesting. I bet in a few months time they'll still be wrestling with it. And I just kind of wanted to go there. You know what? Two thousand years later, still at it.
0: Yes. <laughs> and I think there's um, there is a lot in there about kind of internal church debates. Which actually felt sort of quite prescient, and I wondered if you felt that we we were getting better at it as a church, or <laughs> even maybe whether we've regressed. Have we learnt anything, and maybe have we lost some of the good humour or even the kind of empathy of the time? Because I think what came across in some of those debates was that people were, you know, in a small room and knew each other's backstory, and so they kind of understood the personal reasons why people were coming with their arguments. And I wondered. Yeah, yeah. You know, have we got better as a church at arguing with each other?
1: You heard me laughing when you first asked the question, so you'll gather the answer that no, no, we're no better, are we? I think I might have been over generous um, in drawing the pictures um, of the earliest community in that you know as you say I was telling people's backstories and people understood why people were saying things Um, I think in a way what I was doing is idealizing how we might do those debates today that kind of that generous empathetic understanding I bet they didn't. I bet they still had a real bust up like we do today. But I was just trying to do the what happens if you do know each other really well and you allow people to have arguments in a different kind of way. Um, So in a way, that was more my kind of idealisation of how you might have a big debate rather than necessarily reporting that they did. Because if you look at Galatians, they clearly were not being nice to each other. Um, They were quite vicious. So, (laughs) <laughs> yeah. So I was I was imagining an ideal scenario rather than probably as it probably was.
0: You were obviously very involved in the um, debates at General Synod around around sort of women bishops, and I wondered had your experience of that kind of informed the book, and did it almost take you to kind of step away from that kind of debating chamber in order to write something like this that it maybe wasn't so fresh that you had been involved
1: in sort of such intense and heated debates. Um, very much so, actually. Um, And there's kind of two contexts in which I've been involved, which were in my mind when I was writing. One of them is the women bishops legislation. The other one is I'm still a member of Anglican Roman Catholic International Commission, ARCIC. And what I learned from both of those is that um, you can have a really contentious debate among people you know well in a completely different way than you can in the big arena. What happened with both women bishops and with ARCIC is that you form relationships, and once you've formed relationships, the debate changes. But the trouble is you then leave that little group and you then you go out to the big group and say, hey, look what distance we've travelled. But the people out there haven't travelled the distance relationally as you have inside the group. Um, and that's when the, the big debates become really difficult. It happens in both contexts. And mm-hmm. then that's what I was trying to do in the book is say, well, look what happens when you get together in a small group and you get to know each other and you understand people's journeys. Actually, you deal with the conflict in a different kind of way. So you picked up absolutely on one of the things that was in my mind is that this is how we really need to do conversation, but how you then take it out into a big context where you don't know people's journeys, I think is a lot more difficult.
0: I was also thinking um, when I was reading the book about a recent um, Channel 4 documentary by Professor Joan Taylor that was looking at... um, Yeah, yeah. and um, I wondered whether you feel that um, the sort of existing discoveries about the early women of the church are kind of disseminated enough because one of the debates that came out of the program was people saying well this isn't new we know this and then other people saying well you know we might know this as people that are very involved in the church but for for mainstream British audience this could be quite revelatory um so how do we make sure that what we do know you know everything in your footnotes is is
1: shared more broadly yeah, I think it's a really important question. And it's exactly what I thought about that program as well. I had um, a range of conversations with people going because you know, it was set up, wasn't it, as, you know, this new, amazing you know, evidence and discovery and no one's ever come across it before. We were all sat there watching it going, yeah, we knew that already. But what is interesting, I think, so we had those kind of conversations, but then you had the conversations with people who were slightly outside of the Christian circles. And um, for them, this really was genuinely new and, and it was kind of an interesting evidence. But I think what in conversations around all of it, what's come out of it for me, which I think is really important, is that um, whether we know it or not, imagine a scene in which you talk about Jesus and his disciples and you imagine just men, always. Uh, And I think what they were doing and what I'm trying to do is we we have to imagine women there because they were there. But we get used to not imagining women there. But your question then becomes really important is how do we begin to get that um, more normalized view out? um, People in churches and uh, the way which people imagine. I don't really know. But I think this kind of thing um, will begin to help us um, explore it, I think. Why do you think that it it is such a
0: brief reference? Because it is tantalising. But um, do you know from a kind of historian theologian's point of view why more wouldn't have been said in the Bible?
1: I think there is a really easy explanation of it, which is that both the Gospels and Paul's letters are about Jesus effectively. Paul is not trying to tell us about his communities. He's trying to get us to think about who Jesus was and what impact it had. So the reason why the references are very slight is because it's not really what it's about. Um, and, And here's the other interesting little wrinkle is I don't think Paul expected us to be reading it all this years later. So he knew who Phoebe was, the people in Corinth knew who Phoebe was, and the people in Rome nearly were about to know who Phoebe was. And um, he doesn't need to introduce her because she was there and she could introduce herself. It's the now we're reading it all these years later. Um, we've now got, uh, we're, we're going, well, well, who was she and where would she come from and why did she have the letter? And, but but Paul didn't need to tell them any of those things because they knew it already. So it's the, we're, we're the trespassers into a bit of private correspondence. We're going, but, but you haven't told us. Who all these people are, and I think Paul would go. Well, I wasn't writing to you.
0: Could you say a bit about your decision to to um, go into so much detail about her experiences as a slave? And um, one of the things that made me think a bit about was um, Elaine Storkey's book, um, Scars Across Humanity, and I guess the reality that the imprisonment and trafficking of women is still such a live issue. Um, so, could you say a bit about why you wanted to go into such detail about
1: her sort of fairly traumatic background? Um, because I was trying to do um, a reflection around the reality of being a woman, um, whether it be in the first century or in the 21st century. Because in a sense, what the book is, is a reflection on what prevents someone who's clearly already a woman in certain levels of leadership from going into another, a greater form of leadership, which was the, taking the, um, the, the mission to Spain. Um, And what I was trying to say is that actually there are a whole load of contextual reasons, well I was trying to do a whole page of things, but one of the things I was trying to say is that there there are some very contextual reasons why some women um, struggle to occupy their role in leadership more than men do, and so (laughs) So you need to know people's backstories. You need to understand who they were and where they come from in order to recognise that inhabiting of leadership can be harder for women in some contexts than others. So that's one thing i was trying to say. The other Mm. thing I was trying to illustrate is that from the 21st century, we have a very kind of monochrome view of slavery. And what I was trying to do in the book is to say, look, there are loads of different ways that people were slaves in the first century. So you have the really traumatic stories of people like Phoebe and then of Marcus in these early days. Um, But then you have other people who um, are really quite happy with being a slave and are really quite well looked after. And again, what I was trying to do is do that. There's this whole range of different experiences. Um, But the harsh reality about being a woman who was a slave in the first century was that your body wasn't your own. Mm. And therefore, um, there were a whole load of consequences that came out of the fact that your body wasn't your own. And uh, just as now, um, there are lots of women who have that. So I I was kind of trying to make a whole lot of little points all connected. So a little bit political about people's experiences today, a little bit um, reflecting around leadership and what stops women engaging in leadership. And then a little bit about our understanding of slavery.
0: Yeah, there's a line where um, towards the end um, where somebody says, Phoebe has been battling her calling since we first met her and I wondered if you could reflect a bit on the extent to which that still applies to women in the church or indeed men in the church and was it something that um, really resonated with you if you'd had to battle a calling or, or if there are sort of friends
1: that you've seen that struggle in? Yeah I think it's it's it is frankly quite hard to be a woman in leadership in the church um and i certainly am that was definitely an autobiographical line um given half a chance i would not be high profile doing big speaking events that's not um what i would choose to do it is apparently what god has called me to do but it's not what i would choose to do and part of it is to do with the fact that as a woman you get a lot more negative feedback than you do as a man Mm -hmm. Um, and therefore um it can be difficult So in a way, I was wanting to um, reflect that as a woman, often a calling can be a difficult journey to follow and and often given half a chance, many of us would run away from it. But you you stay faithful. That's not to say it's easy for men. I'm just saying that my experience as a woman tells me that actually um, there can be some specific difficulties around being female and doing leadership.
0: I know that recently there was, there was a cartoon that went viral and it showed the different reactions that men and women get when they speak. And you had said, you know, that that had been your experience and it, it even sort of made you take a bit of a step back, which I think many people express a lot of surprise about because they would think of you as a very accomplished theologian.
1: You know, I've seen you speak at Greenbelt. In all honesty, it's quantity. It's not, you know, it, the trouble is when you say these kind of things, people go, oh dear, she's a tender flower, you know, a couple of negative comments and there she goes all wobbling. Um, we're not talking a couple. We're talking hundreds and thousands. Um, not, I mean, obviously not all the time, but if you count them up over the years, uh, we're definitely into thousands of negative stuff about appearance, tone of voice, whether I ought to be doing it, whether I can do it, whether I'm any good and whether I understand my theology and what I was noticing in myself is to start with you, you can laugh it off and say, OK, um, doesn't make any difference. And then as time goes on, I, I noticed myself catching. So when I would decide what to wear, I would just catch myself and go, well, it can't be a skirt because then people criticise it, whether it's too short or too long. So maybe it would be trousers, but it can't be that kind of trousers. It needs to be this kind of trousers. Once you start thinking and double thinking um then it's it started to kind of kind of erode your soul a little bit and what I needed to do was take a little bit of time away and rebuild my soul do a bit of soul making so that I I it is not that I believed it but it had started to affect me it made a difference to who I was and what decisions I was making and I just needed to make sure that it didn't I didn't tip me too far over the edge
0: In terms of of people listening to this who might be surprised to hear that or, you know, who are very supportive of women speaking. What what is it that the church can do to, I guess, be a counterweight to
1: to some of that reaction? Well, I think the very first thing that I would say is um, whenever you want to go and speak to a woman who is um, in some kind of leadership position or has done some kind of big stage um, talking or those kinds of things, don't say the first thing that comes into your mind. Allow the first thing to come in, take it out, say the second thing that comes into your mind. Because um, there's a very, very strong chance that a hundred other people have said that, that first thing. You know, so when my children were younger, pretty much every conference I spoke at and every event I was at, um, there would be more than five people who would say to me, don't you worry about your children while you're away. Um, and of course, what they were doing was being genuine. They- Genuinely concerned. It was the first thing that came into their mind, and they said it, and they they meant it genuinely. But the trouble is, by the time you've had five people saying to you, "Aren't you worried about your children?" You go, "Oh, I'm a really bad mum. Yeah, I really, oh, uh, you know." And, and it's uh, but it's also a question you can never answer because the answer is, "Of course, I worry about my children. I worry about them when I'm there and when I'm away. That's what mothers do." Um, but I've got great child care in place, so no. But once a lot of people have said it to you, then you start kind of doubting yourself. So big rule say the second thing don't say the first thing and then the other thing is be aware that people naturally criticize women more so if you can say something positive say something positive if you need you want to pick them up that's great but just say something positive first before you get into the negative
0: yeah and are you you seeing um more younger women coming forward with with great great confidence or Is there still a lack of encouragement, I guess, about another generation of women coming forward and and speaking?
1: There is a massive um, change of culture. And I'm so encouraged to see loads of women in their 20s and early 30s who are starting. I think um, you just need to look at how many women there are who are older um, to recognise that. Starting is one thing, continuing is another, and we need to go be above and beyond to make sure that we, we have a whole range of different women speaking from a whole range of experience um, and be really really supportive of them. Um, there's really interesting statistics if you look at um, PhD statistics of how many women do undergraduate work, then they who do masters graduate work, then who do PhDs get to the end and then get a job. Um, you start 50 50, you end. Tiny, tiny proportions of women staying on. We have to ask the question of where what what happens to the drop off. We're yeah. still in huge drop off territory. So what can we do to counteract all that big drop off?
0: Yeah, great point. Um, and what role do you think um, learning about Phoebe plays? Um, I know that um, one of the conversations that women have about being in church, um, where often it is a male preacher, is that they don't actually get to hear very much about their Four mothers in yeah. the church and um, that that can have a real impact on your faith and then it's actually incredibly moving when you do hear a sermon that, that is about these women. So um, do we kind of underestimate the power of hearing those stories, not just on women but on a congregation?
1: I think so, absolutely. Um, if I use a slightly different example, um, one of my favourite novelists is Philippa Gregory um, I know some people love her, some people hate her, but I'm a real fan of hers. And what she's done single-handedly is reintroduce women into the history of the period around Henry VIII, but earlier, a bit later. Um, and I love what she's done, because what you can trace now in through after the influence of Philippa Gregory is people are now studying, for example, Mary Boleyn's life in a way that they never were before she write the, wrote The Other Berlin Girl. So she's actually opened up. A world of women for people, and what I'm wanting to do with this is to do a similar kind of thing. Is to open up the world of women and go. They were there. We just they're just a bit silent, um, and I think it really does because because I think I, one of the things I've struggled with my faith is you know when people say who are your ancestors in the faith. Um, naturally first coming to mind are people like Paul and then I say well actually no I, I really do want to be inspired by female characters and I think people like Phoebe and Junior are incredibly inspiring.
0: Something I found really moving was the end of that um, Joan Taylor documentary where they put the the women's statues um, mm-hmm up and they sort of emerged I I found that really moving and the the, the last two questions I had were one you've touched on but are there other sort of acts of historical imagination or historical novelists that inspire you so one of them I was thinking of was Hilary Mantle Um, and secondly if you were to um, do another book like this is there another woman that you would like to um, imagine a history for
1: Right. So first, um, yeah, Hilary Mantel, I'm a real, real fan of. Um, There's um, there's, well, Alison Weir does some really interesting things. Hilary Mantel does interesting things. So those kind of female novelists, I think, are doing some really fascinating work. I also want to talk about the... um, The male um, scholars who've done some interesting stuff, so people like Gert Tyson, The Shadow of the Galilean and and Bruce Longenek as The Letters of Pergamum, um, are, again, biblical fictional accounts. And I loved what they were trying to do. And that's what gave me the idea of the Phoebe book. And the answer is yes. If this goes well, I've got another idea. And um, I think it'd be really, really interesting to do something on Philippians. Um, mm. What we've got in Philippians is a fascinating backstory. So um, Epaphras has gone to visit Paul in prison, um, nearly dies. And, um, and then you, so you've got all of that dynamic. And Paul mentions um, Euodia and Syntyche who've fallen out. Um, I can't quite imagine calling a book Euodia. I don't think it would quite sell in the same kind of way. <laughs> but I'd love to do something around who Euodia and Syntyche was, because another important woman connected to Philippi, who wasn't mentioned in Philippines, is Lydia. So you've got Lydia, Euodia and Syndicate, and I think that is crying out for a little um, fictional account. Um, if this goes well enough, then I'll have a go.
0: Excellent. I hope you do. I really, I really enjoyed the book. It was brilliant. Thank you.